Thanks for joining me for this week's episode of my new podcast series, Figureheads, brought to you by Barclay Card Business. I'm lucky to be able to pick the brains of leaders from the world of sport, music and entertainment and to share their adventures and top tips with all of you. This week, I'm joined by sporting trailblazer Baroness Sue Campbell. Sue has been director of women's football at the FA since 2016. Sue's love affair with sport has lasted a lifetime. She began her career as a PE teacher in Manchester, played netball for England and went on to co-found the hugely successful Youth Sport Trust in 1995. Sue headed up UK Sport, overseeing Team GB and Paralympic GB's biggest Olympic medal win in history at the 2012 Games. She was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award at the 2012 Sunday Times Sportswoman of the Year Awards and was made a Lifetime Ambassador of the Youth Sport Trust Sue's most recent honour was to be awarded a Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire in December 2019 for her services to sport. And if that wasn't enough, she has also been a crossbench peer in the House of Lords since 2008. Hello, Baroness Sue Campbell. It's Warwick here. Hello, Warwick. Nice to meet you. It's very nice to meet you as well. It's absolutely an honour to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. So you're my figurehead for the day, talking about leadership. So figurehead, is that an accolade? Well, you've got so many anyway, so uh, you, can add that. you can add that to the huge list of accolades that you already have. They don't matter, really. <laughs> so you're a baroness. I don't think I've ever met a baroness. Um, do I call you baroness or how do I Just refer to you? Just call me Sue, please. Sue, is yeah. that okay? I'm sorry we can't chat in person today, but the COVID lockdown situation has prevented that. But it's great to virtually meet you nonetheless. And you. I'm fascinated to hear what you have to say about leadership because, of course, you're very experienced leading various different organisations throughout your career. I mean, your CV is incredible. I mean, it took me ages to read it. (laughs) So many achievements on there. But I'm sure you don't do what you do to receive those accolades, do you? That's not what motivates Sue Campbell, is it? No, no. I've been very lucky with my journey. I've really enjoyed it. You know, when you look back and you think, is there anything you would have done differently? No, not really. Every experience I've had has been part of the journey of of my my life and my experience. But I'm driven by a a much bigger desire, which is that, and this sounds a little grand, but I want to make the world a better place. And the tool I have in my hand is sport. Mm. Uh, And in particular, in, in, in this role at the Football Association, just trying to use it to improve the lives of girls and women in society. So I'm driven by a, a, a sort of higher purpose, I guess, and that's followed me all the way through my career and, and has been an absolute driver for what I've achieved. Mm. Now, did you choose your leadership style or is it something that developed over the course of time? Did you set out to say, I'm going to lead this way? When I look back, you know, I wasn't the most academically uh, talented youngster but I ended up as head girl of my school. Then I went to Bedford PE College and I wasn't the most outstanding student, but I ended up as senior student. Mm. I guess there's been something in me, and whether it's those early years of confidence or just that people trust me, they trust who I am. You know, leadership is not about a position. It's about whether people will follow you. Mm. 
It's not like management where you might be called something and therefore hierarchically you're more important in inverted commas than anybody else. Leadership is not that. It requires followership. You know, you can't be a leader on your own. Well, leadership by definition means you've got to have people following you. And f- followers only follow you if they believe in you. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, belief and trust are very important. Mm. So you mentioned being head girl there. Was that your first leadership? Yes, I think probably. It probably was. Um, Mr. Gray was the head teacher and I'd been in his office before, but not for plaudits. Um <laughs> I'd thrown a snowball through his window at one point and uh, other things. My goodness. And I wasn't always the best behaved child. Um, but uh, I had a sort of impishness, I guess, and naughtiness that he quite liked. So, <laughs> so he thought your head girl material, really? Yeah. Yeah. And I always remember when I became a senior student at, at Bedford PE College, I walked in to see the principal. I'd only been in her office twice before and both times to be told off. And as I walked in, she looked up over those half moon glasses that she used to wear. Oh, gosh. She looked at me over the top and she said, my, this is going to be an interesting year. (laughs) (laughs) And it was. Was was she a great leader? Yeah, she was. She was a special person. Mm. Yeah. I I stayed friends with her. She died not that long ago at the age of 102, 103. She was an outstanding leader. What was her style? Oh, she was a bit more scary. Oh, right. she, she, but she, she was uh, one of those women that had kind of forged the way very much in a man's world. Mm. You didn't cross her easily. No. She was a very different kind of leader. But beneath it, absolutely passionate, committed, and really cared about her students. But you, you were a bit scared of her. So she commanded respect over those half-moon glasses. She did, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now, there'll be people listening who have big egos <laughs> and consider themselves to be the boss. Do you agree with that term, boss? I'm not a great lover of hierarchy. Mm. I think we all have different roles and different responsibilities. So that doesn't mean I don't carry the can if it all goes wrong. I get that. I know mm. If that's what you mean by boss, then yes, I know that's me. Um, but... I don't really believe in a top-down approach to things. That doesn't mean I believe in some sort of, you know, freedom of everybody doing anything they want to. That's not what I mean at all. But I don't believe that the boss should be somebody that you feel threatened by or someone who feels somehow they're more important. You know, I'm not more or less important than anybody that works on the women's game. I have a different responsibility level. I have responsibility for the budget, I have responsibility for the strategy, but that doesn't mean I'm more important than Sandra, my PA, for example, Um, who does things I couldn't possibly do. So, Sue, something I've noticed so far in chatting to you is that you're a very confident person. You're quite formidable, actually, even to talk to you at a distance. (laughs) And uh, how important is confidence as a leader? And is it something you can build if you don't already have it? I think there's di- many different ways of being a leader. I've I've met some people who are very quiet, unassuming, great leaders, and I've met some very noisy, boisterous leaders. Mm. I look back and have to be incredibly grateful for a mother and father who instilled in me a belief that I would go on and do whatever I wanted to do in life. Mm. But confidence is important. You know, I, I think you can grow people's confidence. I mean, all of us, even, you know, when we, even when we get older, we're just like children. We need praise. We yeah. need somebody to say, well done. That was a good job. You did that really well. 
And we also need somebody that occasionally just takes us in the corner and say, do you know what? We could have done that maybe a little bit better. Shall we talk about how we could have done that? And so what happens is you build in someone a sense that they... I like the way you said we then as well. You didn't say you could have done that better. You said we could have done that better, which is lovely. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I I think as a coach of a player mm. or as a coach, as a manager, you have to take responsibility for the performance of the player. I see. Because our jobs as managers and leaders is to coach those beneath us to grow. Mm. You know, and I, I think... The analogy I often use with the, with the troops is gardening. Oh, you know, yeah. you can want to have a beautiful garden, but when you put a plant in, you can't stand over the top of it and shout at it, grow you, perisher. <laughs> That's not how you grow a plant. You have to make sure you put it into the right soil. You might have to add a little uh, manure, I'll call it, rather than the word I would mm -hmm. use, but uh, you might have to add a little, you know, which is your constructive criticism and support. You've got to water it. You've got to keep saying, hey, good things, well done. You've got to put some sun on it. Let it shine. Take it to the board. Let them talk. Don't you talk. Let them show what they're capable of. Let them shine. And blow me, you get a great garden. And I, I think that's, that's how you grow confidence. If I'm asked to go to the FA board around any particular topic, I'll take the person who leads that work. And I might introduce it and finish it at the end, but they they present in the middle. That's massively gives them huge confidence. I believe in them that they speak into the FA board directly. I think those things really matter to people. I very much like that analogy. Does that mean Alan Titchmarsh is a great leader? Uh, with plants, he definitely <laughs> is. <laughs> yeah, he probably is actually. But I think I learned very early in my coaching career when I was the first woman on the staff at Loughborough and there were some really outstanding and talented coaches on the staff. And one of them uh, took me under his wing and I was a very a didactic coach. Tell, 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 go, 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 well-organised, well-structured, all energy from the sideline. <laughs> and he stopped me and said, I want to ask you a really simple question. Uh, this was netball. I said, yes. He said, when the game starts, who makes the decisions? I said, well, the players do. He said, and when do they practice that? And it was like mm -hmm. a penny dropping in my head. You know, if you want to grow people, you're not just growing them in terms of skills and techniques. You're growing them in thinking. And if you want people to develop thinking skills, you've got to give them room to think, which means you've also got to give them room to make mistakes. Right, uh, And when they make those mistakes, to work through it with them, to have a look at what went wrong, what could have been done differently, and to have another go. Who have been your biggest influences during your career? Well, mum and dad, without any question. Dad, um, with his, his wonderful storytelling. And what was always good was it had a punchline. <laughs> and it, it was usually a punchline that really gave you a steer in life. It was very clever. And, and I guess I absorbed a lot of that. But the story I'll, I'll tell you, which just sums him up really well, was um, I went to uh, the school's athletics championships, which is held every year. But it was a huge mega event to represent Derbyshire, which is where my school was. And uh, each year I would go and I would get so tense that my arm would lock and I'd throw the flipping discus out the sector. You know, there's a sector you have to get it in. Three years, four years, I think it was, I went as the best thrower in the country and threw three foul throws. You can imagine, fourth year or third year, I can't remember exactly, 
I'm, I get so, home and he's sitting in the kitchen waiting to find out what happened. I lift up the dustbin lid and I throw my kit in it, right? Boom. And I walk up to the kitchen and he says to mum, I think you better leave this one to me. So <laughs> mum went for cover. Uh, and I walked in and uh, I'm never doing athletics again. And off I went and he let me ramp for a while. And then he said, your mum and I love you, whether you do it or you don't do it. It's mm. okay with us. And then he proceeded to talk to me. And what he said, which was captured later on, I saw billboards. He didn't say these exact words was the choice is yours. You can be history or you can make history. Wow. And, you know, I'll remember that always, which is, you know, you have a choice. Mm. You can pack it in, you can call it a day, or you can go get that stuff out of the dustbin and, and make history. And mm. sure enough, I went and got the stuff out of the dustbin, and next year I won the English Schools Athletics Championship. So, you know, those moments are key moments in a child's life, aren't they? Now, there'll be some bosses listening or leaders listening who think that being too empathetic makes them weak almost and... Uh doesn't do them any favours as a leader. That's not true, is it? No, I, I. it's a bit like humility. You know, it's not a weakness, it's a strength. Mm. You know, be, being empathetic, understanding people, having insight into people is a huge strength if you want to coach and get the best out of them. You know, we want our businesses to be successful and if we're not careful, we get driven by a bottom line, but that bottom line is produced by people. And it's those people that we need to invest our time and our coaching and our support in if we want to improve that bottom line. Because work is a big part of our lives, but it is only a part of our lives. And I think caring about the rest of people's lives and understanding the pressures that might be on them, you know, whether that's relationship pressures, whether that's children now Mm -hmm. at home, and all the challenges that brings. I was talking to somebody yesterday and I was screaming in the background. She said, I'm going to have to go. I said, okay. You know, you have to understand that. We're living in this very strange world. So I I think it's really important that we understand the pressures that people are under um, because that affects how they work. And understanding that means you're more empathetic. Yes. It means you are more aware. And it means that those times when they need to say, I can't do this, they're not frightened to say that to you because they know you understand mm. the wider picture. So I think people matter to me. They have a job to do, but they don't just matter because of the job. They matter because they're people. Well, so it's very interesting you talk about you being quite a compassionate sort of leader. And uh, for me, as an actor, directors who are compassionate are by far the most effective. If you've got a director who kind of understands and has empathy of what it's like to be on a film set and what kind of an exposing sort of experience it is for you as an individual, then they'll get the best out of you. And an example of that would be the director, Ron Howard. Because he himself started life as an actor, he knows exactly what it feels like to be an actor on a film set. So I think that's really important as a, as a leader, isn't it, that you have um, experience also being on the other side of the fence. I couldn't agree with you more. I think one of the strengths, if you like, of, of the journey that I've been on is that I've pretty well done everything. Mm. You know, I've I've taught in a very tough secondary school. I've I've worked in a, a Loughborough, you know, a centre of real excellence for sport as a lecturer. I've worked in the inner city with young people, unemployed, disadvantaged, trying to use sport as a tool for their development. 
So on that journey, I pretty well experienced all the things that I'm now asking my colleagues to lead and develop. So I think that gives you insight, as you quite rightly say, and it and it mm. allows you a much clearer picture of what you're trying to do. I'm not saying you've got to have done it all in order to lead it, but I do think it helps if you've experienced sufficiently different roles that you can really relate to the people that are mm. taking the responsibility for doing the job. So I've worked with a director where we were on a very remote location and the cast and crew struggled to get there in various 4 by 4 vehicles through mud and across very difficult terrain. But then when we were about ready to shoot, the director would fly in on a helicopter <laughs> and land nearby. And the discontent from everybody, it created a rift between the cast and crew and the director immediately. So that's a really bad example of leadership, isn't it, there? <laughs> uh, yeah, I can totally empathise with that. I remember coming after the game not that long ago and Sandra had very kindly ordered me a car to get me home because it was very late finish and mine was not a Mercedes <laughs> it was a guy who hadn't quite got enough petrol to get us where we wanted to go <laughs> and I remember thinking there's something a bit wrong here this doesn't feel, <laughs> this doesn't feel quite Brilliant. right so it was a kind of reverse of what you're saying in a mm. way um so yes I think it's important I mean, I don't think those privileges of senior people should necessarily all be taken away or that we should always. But I do think you have to have some empathy with the situation that people find themselves in. He could still have flown in his helicopter and really first conversation should have been about, gee, I bet that was a tough journey. How did you get on? I mean, that would have changed things a little bit, maybe. It may not have completely uh, placated you, but it might have changed things a little. Have you ever made a decision as a leader to be popular? So in other words, should that influence you whether you want to be popular or not? I personally like people who are authentic, which means... That's a great word. Uh, they tell, you know, I have a definition of integrity, which is uh, doing what is right, not what is popular or expedient. And I try to say to my guys, we've got to do what is right here. It might not always make us popular, might not make you popular with me, <laughs> It might not feel like it gets you all the glory, but it might be the right decision. If I give you an example, when we moved the Super League to full-time professional, mm. there were clubs there who had put in enormous amount of time and love into the women's game who weren't going to be able to make that jump into the professional world simply because of money. And um, they met with me and you know, that they would have seen me at that point as someone who was unfeeling, uncaring, changing the women's game, taking away a lifetime of effort from them. Mm. And I met them all and they told me what they thought of me, which was they mm. had a right to do that. If I had been sitting where they were, I probably would have been equally angry and upset. And I said, look, I understand your frustration and your anger, but my job is to do what is right for the women's game. It isn't making me popular. And if I don't do this, the women's game in this country won't move forward. We won't be able to compete on an international stage. We won't grow the profile of the game. We won't grow the brand and the commercial investment. Mm. So, Sue, I'm going to paint a picture now. You're in the FA, you're in a meeting, and you want to present a new idea that you want to implement, and you're not getting the agreement from the room. What do you do then? 
I think the thing I often say to my guys is if you bang your head on a wall often enough, the only thing that'll happen is you get a headache. So if you've banged your head on the wall and you've tried maybe a couple of times and you've banged your head, in other words, you've met a stop, back out, have a look, have a think. Is there a way round it? Is there a way over it? Is there a way through it? Or can we present it in a different way? And one of the great tricks, I think, of getting decisions your way is making sure you really understand the people who are making the decisions. Right. Now, where are they coming from? Who are they? What motivates them? And can you speak to that? Mm. Can you present your idea in a way which now helps them understand? So if I give you an example, when I first used to go into the senior management team of, of, of the FA, I would suddenly go off on one of my passionate tirades about the power of sport to change oh. lives. And I could see this sort of rather glazed expression coming back to me. And I'm thinking... I'm not getting through on this at all. And yet, I, you know, I was giving it all I've got. And then I did some analysis. Mm. And what had I got in there but real logical thinkers? Right. Good people, but their minds were logic. So passion driven by logic. to them. So passion was like, oh, gosh, she's off on one again. So mm. I changed my entire approach to the way I presented stuff, and I have continued with that. So if you hit a block... Don't assume that that's a definite ongoing no. Come away, have a think, have the courage to represent thinking differently. And I think the, the person who really helped me with that very early on was a wonderful woman called Estelle Morris, who ended up as Secretary of State for Education in the Labour government. And when I first met her, she was Minister for Schools. Mm. And I was in there banging away with the passionate old Campbell drum about the importance of PE and school sport. And, you know, why wasn't the government doing more? And, and she sat there and she said to me, you haven't given me one reason that I can use. I share your passion, but you haven't given me one reason that I can go to my civil servants or to my secretary of state and explain why we should change our investment strategy. And I said, but I want to change things. And she said, I'm not interested in change. I'm interested in transformation. If I wanted to ask my secretary in now and tell her, if I give you £50, will you dye your hair red? She'd do it. Tomorrow, she'd wash it out. But tonight, she would do it for the £50. But if you want her to transform things, then you've got to get them to buy into the vision of what you're doing. In other words, you, you can't bully people into changing their minds. You've got to coach them into changing their minds. Mm. And you've got to find how they think and in what way they think in order you can present the information to take them on the journey with you. Well, Sue, I run various different businesses. And as I've mentioned already, I've directed a few theatrical productions. And um, normally when I direct, I get great feedback from my cast. They say, you're a great director. We really loved working with you. But within the other businesses, the people that work with me, I don't think I'm a particularly good leader. You know, from what I've heard from you today, Sue, I've got a lot to learn, honestly. I'm very weak. I'll agree with everything they say just for a quiet life because I've got enough aggro going on. So I just tend to kind of just say, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, carry on what you're doing. Should I be really going to these these employees and saying to them, come to me? You know, what do you think of me? I don't know whether I could face it, actually. The truth. But should we be prepared to kind of hear the truth as leaders? So if I tell you one I got wrong, I have a colleague who... He's very feisty, very determined, really capable, brilliant at what she does. 
And in order to sort of ease the mood, I think, of some of our meetings, we got into a bit of what in modern parlance is banter. Mm -hmm. And I remember her staying after one meeting. I was getting up to go and I suddenly got that, you know, vibe. Hang on a minute here. She's hanging about. So I said, did you want to talk? And she said, have you got time? I said, yeah, of course. I said, what what is it? And she said, I'm really starting to be uncomfortable. So I said, oh, I'm sorry. I said, have I taken this joshing too far with you? I hadn't realized that in her mind that was changing her relationship with the others. Right, yes, of course. And so we stopped that. I mean, I said, neither of us. Let's just call it a day. Don't let's do that anymore. And so that that's a classic example where you can get something. It, it wasn't massively wrong, but it was enough wrong to give her disquiet. Mm. But I felt she was she was able to say to me, hey, this isn't working for me anymore. It's making me uncomfortable. So I think we've always got to take the temperature on the way we are with people. I hope my colleagues would always feel able to tell me. I'm pretty sure they would. But I do do a regular 360 where I ask them to tell me, honestly, what's helpful, what isn't helpful, what more could I do? And I take that very seriously. And I look at it I look at it every year and I, I kind of reset some of my behaviours based on what they're telling me. So, Sue, I'd like to talk about the time you joined the FA as a leader. So you go in there and you assess the climate and the situation and you see what's potentially wrong and what you think you might want to change or transform. Now, is there a period of time that you have to kind of hold off doing anything and not disrupt? The way I look at this is when you first arrive in an organisation, you have to imagine that you've gone to a party and you're walking into someone else's home and the party's already underway. Mm. Now, let's assume there's not too much alcohol at this point, but mm. they're underway because there's a mood set and a tone set and things are happening. And you walk in and you go, oh, my goodness, what on earth is all of this? But what you've got to be really aware of is you're walking into someone else's home. Oh, yeah. And therefore, for a while, you've got to absorb that culture. You've got to feel it. You've got to understand that you can't just walk in and say, well, this looks very stupid. You wouldn't dream of doing that. No. In, a, in someone else's home. So you've got to be exactly the same when you come into a business that has got a different culture to the one you used to, has a different way of looking at things than you would look at them. And so it took me probably three months to six months to truly absorb what I'd come into, to analyse what was happening and what wasn't happening, to look at the people I had got inside the organisation I had to understand all of that before I could go back to Martin, CEO, and say, here's what I think we need to do. So it's very like walking into someone else's home. You know, I'm very neat and tidy. I find it really hard to walk into someone's house that is all over the place. I immediately want to start clearing up. You know, I want to start putting things away. I know what you mean. I always want to straighten the pictures on the wall. You can't do that. That's somebody else's home. If that's how they want to live, that's how they want to live. And and you've got to be able to slowly absorb that and then start to suggest ways that things could improve and move on. Mm. It is important, isn't it, not to just go in and upset the apple cart. 
Because otherwise you're just going to alienate everybody by just saying, no, this isn't working, this isn't working. To be understood, you have to work at understanding. Mm. And and that's not just understanding what is happening, it's understanding culture, which we sometimes don't do. And I had grown two businesses, and, and you don't realise that when you grow your own business, you grow them in your own your own style. You don't realise you've done that. You create a culture because of the way you are. And I went into UK sport and it took me, you know, days of just walking around, you know, with a cup of coffee in my hand, talking to people, understanding them, understanding the relationships, understanding the roles and responsibilities, but more importantly, getting a sense of business. What did it feel like? What was the energy in the place? What was the passion in the place? What was who was driving what? Mm. Now, you mentioned walking around there with a cup of coffee. Is that a better approach than sitting in your office and summoning people to you? Do you think you get a different response from them in in your kind of wandering around with a coffee? I've I've Why? I've always done that. I don't mm. know. I, you know, it's always worked for me. And, and certainly, when I went to UK Sport, I asked three really simple questions of every single person that I and I would wander up with my cup of coffee and have that conversation. You know, what do you do? Mm. And they usually tell me, "What could you do?" Forget resource constraints. That's interesting. What could you do Mm. and what is stopping you? So an example was um, someone who was working in drugs education, asked her what she was doing, writing a leaflet, she replied. I said, for whom? She said, athletes. I said, how does it get to them? Don't know, don't do that bit. Do you know if they absorb the effect? Don't know, don't do that bit. Mm. So here we have someone writing a leaflet with advice on what to eat or drink or not eat or drink. But we're not, we're not, they don't own that. They simply write in the leaflet with knowledge. Uh, I said, so what could you do? What do you mean? She asked me. I said, well, forget. I said, don't tell me you could write two leaflets. I'm not interested Mm. in that. I said, if we weren't writing a leaflet, what could you do? And she started to talk and her eyes lit up. She got really excited and she described how she would do this program. And the program that she described to me that day became a world leading program. 100% 100% me. And wow. it was sitting in her head no one had ever asked. So in your offices, in your buildings, you may have people like that who have created, not mm. everybody, but you may have people with creativity who can find a solution to something you're trying to do. See, those three questions helped me determine that. They also gave me an insight into management style. You know, what stopped you was repeatedly a look over the shoulder So that told me that our management style was very top down. It wasn't bottom up. It wasn't, you know, how do we get the best out of these people? It was more, you do what I ask you to do. So, Sue, thinking back over your long and illustrious career, what is the best and worst piece of advice you've been given? I think the worst advice was that if I wanted, this was a lecturer at Bedford College who told me that if I wanted to get on, then I needed to go to a school that's had a very good reputation, but told me that if I wanted to achieve that, then I had to go to elocution lessons because my accent wouldn't help me get into those schools. So that was my worst advice. So I didn't change my accent, as you can obviously tell. Um, Although I was sent to elocution lessons and bamboozled her by speaking very poshly for the first 10 minutes. And she said, I don't know why you're here. I don't don't either. I don't either. Oh, brilliant. Um, 
So there you go. So that was my worst. Change the way you speak and you'll get on in life. <laughs> the best in terms of affecting my entire management was, was Jimmy Greenwood, who uh, was the rugby coach at Loughborough. And he was the guy that, that really helped me understand that if you want to coach, you want to get the best out of people, it isn't what you tell them. It's how you use good questions to get them to find their own solutions. He did it in such a brilliant way that he embedded it in my thought process so deeply that that has stayed with me throughout my career. And that's, you know, ask great questions. Don't make great deal of statements. So you can I just say that uh, this conversation has been absolutely fascinating. You've been brilliant. I've learned a lot and I hope our listeners learned a lot as well. Um, trying to summarise what you've said is almost an impossible task. Um, you've said so many wonderful things and very relevant things to leadership. Uh, the idea of being a compassionate leader, somebody who cares about people you're leading. I thought that was a lovely thought that you had there and a lovely thing that you do. Well, it's been a, it's been a great pleasure for me, Warwick. I've really enjoyed it. It's been very relaxed, and uh, mm. I, I've loved the conversation, and I've loved listening to your stories too. So, well, thank you very uh, much. Thank, I really thanks appreciate for the opportunity, it. And, and you know, I just hope this is useful to people in some way or other, or at least maybe gets gives them time to reflect and think. And Sue, also thanks to you for all the wonderful things you've done in sport and helping young people in this country because uh, it's much needed. And um... thank you. I hope so. I really believe it can change lives and change lives for the better. So I, I really hope that the work we've all done over the years can make a real difference. Again, humble to the end there, saying we've all done instead of I've all done. <laughs> That's brilliant. Baroness Sue Campbell, thank you very much indeed for being my figurehead today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Show notes and more info can be found in the episode description. Join me next week when I'm speaking to Melvin Benn, the legendary music festival promoter behind some of Europe's most iconic festivals and concerts, and the managing director of Festival Republic. We will be talking about how to manage the unexpected. And of course, all of this has been made possible by Barclaycard Business. Music